So welcome to uh, this program. I'm Jane Shaw. I'm the Dean for Religious Life. And this is the first in our What Matters to Me and Why series. And we're so delighted that uh, such a distinguished person as Dean Lloyd Minor would come and kick off our series. It's fantastic. He's our guest speaker today. And as you will know, he's the Dean of the School of Medicine. Um, so let me just tell you a few things about Dean Minor before we get into the program proper. He came to Stanford in 2012 from Johns Hopkins University. He had been the provost of Johns Hopkins University from 2009 to 2012. And prior to that, he was the Andalot Professor and Chair of the Department of Otolaryngology. Have I got that right? Right. Great. Which, for those of us not in the know, is head and neck surgery. So he was the chair of the department of that at Johns Hopkins and the chief doctor in that at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. <laughs> he was educated at Brown University. He's held residencies and internships at Duke and Chicago before he went to teach and practice medicine at Johns Hopkins. He's done immensely important research on balance and inner ear disorders. Uh, his research has been path-breaking in many ways, and I'm going to get him to talk a bit about that today. And because of his distinction as a scholar and a researcher, in 2012 he was elected to the National Academy of Medicine. So it's really wonderful to have, first of all, to have Lloyd Mine as the Dean of our medical school. It's so fantastic, and it's great to have him here for this program. Thank you, Lloyd. Thank you, Jane. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So my first question is, tell us the top three things that matter to you and why. Right. Uh, top three things that matter to me are integrity, family, and diversity. Okay. Integrity because I think to be a meaningful person in life, to have a life of meaning, um, everything is grounded on integrity. Individual integrity and then the integrity that comes out of groups of people with shared values and interests working together. Um, Integrity to me means, certainly means honesty. It means being able to listen and understand and include others uh, in a discussion of where we are today and where we're going. Um, it means having a sense of purpose, a uh, sense of purpose as an individual, and very importantly with others, a sense of purpose as what we do organizationally and what we do as a society. So I list integrity first as what matters to me personally and in those with whom I have the privilege of working. Uh, family, because my family has been the source of enormous strength and meaning for me for years uh, growing up and then for the past 29 years with my wife and um, our two children that came along. And um, my family still provides um, enormous solace, encouragement. Um, and support in my life. And um, I feel very fortunate to have uh, a wife who um, has been my wife for 29 years, but also been my best friend and um, my ally. And at times uh, when I need it, my harshest critic. Um, and sometimes when I don't need it too, but that's fine as well. And um, diversity. And diversity because that um, started, the importance of diversity came to me really as a kid. So I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, um, the segregated South. Um, I was born in 1957, the year that um, nine very brave African-American students 
uh, entered Central High School in Little Rock under, protect, under the protection of the Federalized National Guard. Um, and even though segregation had been outlawed in 1953 with the Brown versus Board of Education decision, and even though these nine very brave students uh, were admitted and became students at Central High, the schools in Little Rock, as well as in most of the South, and not restricted to the South, you look at Chicago, you look at Los Angeles, a lot of other areas, the schools remained segregated. In Little Rock and in much of the South, they remained segregated because you went to school where your neighborhood was, where you, where you lived. And of course, all the neighborhoods were segregated. So I grew up you know, in elementary school and then in the first two years of junior high school, uh, going to really all white schools. And then in 1971, the federal courts ruled that it was not sufficient just to say any kid could attend any school, that school districts had to be proactive in achieving desegregation, and that each school in the district had to have a proportion of whites and blacks roughly in proportion to the makeup of the, of the, of the city. And it, in Little Rock at the time, it was roughly 60% white and 40% African-American. So in, when I entered ninth grade, which at that time was junior high in, in Little Rock, I boarded a bus and was transported across town to Dunbar Junior High School, which had been um, prior to that really an all African-American junior high. And I still remember that first day in September, you know, going into the school. And I remember the images of walking into the school and seeing the plaster peeling from the walls, seeing banisters missing from the stairwells, and perhaps most poignantly still in my mind today is going to the library and seeing that the library had very few books and that the books on the lower shelves had had their pages eaten away by rats. And these were the bitter fruits of racial prejudice. Racial prejudice in the community that I was growing up in and more broadly, racial prejudice in our country. And the other thing that was remarkable to me about that experience in that year and then my high school years, which I went to high school at Central High, which also was desegregated at the time the junior high was that I went to. What was remarkable to me, I think if I had been in the other shoes, if I had been African American and white kids were coming into my school, I'm sure that, the, I know that the kids I was getting to know in my new school were aware <clears throat> that I'd been going to a school with far different and far better resources than they had grown up with. And I think I would have been very bitter about that, um, seeing a bunch of white kids come into my environment. But, but nothing could have been further from the case. I found a very welcoming and warm group of students and teachers, and it caused me to want to have an effect and to be a proponent and supporter of diversity uh, in my life and my career. And one of the most meaningful things about my leadership opportunities for me personally has been the opportunity to be personally engaged in and as a leader committed to and acting upon um, that goal and that value and desire to achieve a more diverse and inclusive society through what we do in in higher education, through what we do in medicine, um, and through what we do in our society. Thank you. Okay. So, um, as the dean of the medical school, uh, you know, what are the 
what, what do you enjoy most? And the other side of that, what are the biggest challenges? Which is to say, what do you enjoy least, perhaps? But <laughs> <laughs> Every challenge is an opportunity, Absolutely, Jane. Absolutely, <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. So what do you enjoy most, and what are the greatest challenges and opportunities? <laughs> okay. I, well, I enjoy most the people. I work with an absolutely amazing group of people, students, faculty, staff, uh, hospital leaders, um, staff around the university. Um, it's just an incredible community. And, um, you know, I, I feel blessed uh, to have the opportunity to be a member of our community at Stanford and our community broadly in the state we live in and the communities we live in. Um, and I enjoy, I enjoy the opportunities that come with being at Stanford, the opportunities of being a leader in an academic medical center that's so well integrated with the rest of this great research university and of having a positive vision for what our future is. That isn't necessarily the case in academic medicine across the country today. Uh, this has not been a great decade for academic medicine, broadly speaking, in the United States. Uh, the constraints on research funding, um, the increased, you know, uh, if you will, compliance demands, the things that, um, that various regulatory agencies look to us for. There, there are lots of things that, um, that make it difficult, more difficult for us to do our jobs. I'm not saying those don't exist here, but I think here we very much have the attitude that our best days are in front of us. Uh, we have a wonderful past, but we have a fantastic future ahead of us. And I think we really, we really believe that um, in our heart and soul here. And it's, it's fun to be a leader in, with, in that sort of environment. The biggest challenge here, and it's not restricted to here, it's true at any academic medical center, is um, is alignment. And um, academic medical centers are complex beasts. Um, the tripartite mission of patient care research and teaching uh, is most effective when those mission elements come together and collaborate and interact in a synergistic way. And yet there are lots of forces that will tend to pull them apart and separate them. There are economic drivers that pull them apart. There are uh, contextual differences between how you lead and manage a patient care delivery enterprise and how you lead and manage um, an academically focused enterprise. Now the two absolutely, and the three, research, teaching, and patient care absolutely are compatible, but it, it requires a lot of attention and a lot of leadership acumen uh, to help, help them to be compatible. Um, and, you know, sometimes it works better than other times, uh, but that's also part of the opportunity for, for what we can accomplish in the future. So let me add another ingredient into that, which is, because you did mention the integration of um, a school of medicine into a larger university. Um, how, how do you think the medical, I mean, actually, let me do a quick poll. Who's from the medical school? Who's not from the medical school? Okay, about half and half, that's great, all right. So how do you think the medical school does relate to the rest of the campus? Because in a way, you've got your own sort of sub-campus over there. It's huge, it's, it's significant, it's important. Yeah, one of the most amazing things to me coming here was people talk about this side of campus drive and that side of campus drive. And I, for 19 years, was an institution where the academic medical center was four and a half, five miles away from the rest. And that was, on some days, could be 400 miles. And this is like a, a, little, a little road. Uh, but sometimes it can be a cultural um, challenge um, to cross the road. Um, 
and not to mention the challenge of not making sure making sure you don't get hit by a bicyclist or a car. But um, but anyway, I think um, you know how do we? What are the, the synergistic aspects? Are that we have so many collaborations with other schools at Stanford. We have students getting degrees in every other Stanford school. We have faculty doing research. Over 70% of the research, the extramurally funded research at Stanford today, is biomedically focused. Now, much of that is in the School of Medicine, but also in the School of Engineering. Over 30% of the faculty are doing biomedically related research in the School of Engineering, and that's not just in the Department of Bioengineering. So one of the things I really love about Stanford, about my job, is the opportunity to work with the leaders of the other schools. And we have been working together for, um, for some time now on a collective vision for biomedicine at Stanford and how we at Stanford can lead the biomedical revolution. Uh, in Stanford Medicine, our goal is to lead the biomedical revolution in precision health. Um, and we can uniquely do that at Stanford because we have these incredible collaborations with, with the other Stanford schools. Now where the differences are is that, um, you know, the, the school of, the business school, the GSB, does not run a major corporation, does not run McKinsey or Bain, and the law school doesn't run a law firm like Ropes and Gray. But for sure you can't have an academic medical center unless you have intimately associated with it a healthcare delivery enterprise. And you cannot separate the active engagement with delivering high quality, compassionate, patient-centered care from the goals of doing preeminent research and training the future leaders. You can't pull one off and say, well, patient care is over here. That's part of the health system mission. Research and teaching, well, that's the university mission. It just doesn't work. And attempts to do that create artificial barriers, and in the end, make all three mission elements weaker than they could be. And one of the, the opportunities here, we, we went through a period where we had that sort of an attitude. We were transiently merged and then demerged with UCSF back in the late 90s, demerging in late 2000, 2001. Um, that left, I think, a bad taste in people's mouth at Stanford about healthcare delivery. There were serious considerations at the time. I wasn't here, but meeting with people who were, there were serious considerations about selling the adult hospital to a for-profit healthcare delivery chain. Fortunately, that wasn't done. Um, the decision correctly, I think, was made that to keep things together, but still there has been in the past a skepticism, uh, a degree of discomfort with the patient care mission, and a feeling that somehow it's not a part of the real academic mission. And one of the things I've tried to do in the past four years is to dispel that notion, to show that preeminent patient care is not only a part of the academic mission, but you really can't fulfill the academic mission without preeminent patient care. And I think we're making great strides. We have a lot more work to do, but that's also the opportunity. Okay, great. So um, tell us a bit about your research, because I know you're passionate about it. Yeah even if you don't have much time for it now. <laughs> it's true. Um, I, you know, I got interested in what I have done in research uh, when I was an undergraduate uh, at Brown. And as a junior, I took a bioengineering course that the professor used um, papers from and mathematical models from the system I ultimately studied and devoted my research career to, to show how 
mathematics and engineering principles can be used not only to describe 